And we praise God for that. So yeah, welcome. We're glad you're here this morning. And uh, we are in a new year, so we're starting off doing a whole lot of things differently. And one thing we're going to do, we're going to start off right every morning. We're going to come in and we're going to do, we're not going to stand around a coffee table and get fat and lazy. We're going to do our exercises. Some of you are quite into that. I don't know why I would get laughter on that. Some of you, boy, in the morning, that's a big deal. You get up and do all this stuff. Yeah. So here we go. Here we go. I hope you're ready. I would like to ask everyone, if you can, to please stand. And if you can't, you can still do these exercises where you are. That was the first exercise right there. I heard a lot of groaning. Please stand. And now I want you to take a couple of seconds and look around the room. I want you to just look around the big room. I want you to take it all in. Look at the crowd we've got. And I want, while you're doing that, some of you didn't do it right, and you didn't wait, and you didn't listen. I want you to smile while you're doing that. Now try it. It'll change the whole complexion of the place, and there'll be a hum, kind of a buzz go. See? See, hear the buzz? Hear it? Yeah? Now, I want you to do that one more time, and this time I want you to listen for the instructions. I want you to turn around. I want you to, or look around. You don't have to turn. I want you to smile. And I want you to wave at somebody that you're acquainted with, or maybe you just met them this morning. And if you haven't found them, then look around and wave. And okay, okay. Hey, there you go. There you go. Huh? Huh? Great. And if there's somebody that's way back somewhere or you haven't met them yet, you can send them a special wave. I'll let you decide what that wave is, okay? Okay, nothing obscene, please. Thank you, thank you. And the last exercise is, please be seated. Thank you. You're great. Now, class, let's settle down. I have a serious question or two for you. Do you worry? Any less? Do you worry much? Are you a worrywart? How many of, yeah, be honest. How many of you worry about a few things? Or a lot of things? Or everything? <laughs> Do you live in the worry box? Do you do life? Do you live your life in the worry box? Do you? Huh? Some of you are looking at me like, would you please go wherever you came from? <laughs> some of you are like, is, is this almost over? And some of you are trying to say yes when I ask the question, but your neck is not operating, not functioning properly today. Come on, fess up. Do you live life in the worry box. If you do, I have a little story I want to share with you. I've adapted this somewhat, and I've adopted it, too, from a Patrick McManus tale. And here's what he wrote. He said, I don't know about you, but I have a worry box. 
I have this theory that people possess a certain capacity for worry. No more, no less. We all have that capacity. It's as though a person has this little box that he or she feels compelled to keep filled with worries. When one worry disappears, he immediately replaces it with another worry. So the box is, some of you are already identifying. So the box is always full. He's never short of worries. If a new crop of worries kind of comes in, the person sorts through the box for lesser worries and locks them out until he has enough room for the new worries. The lesser worries just lie around on the floor until there's room in the box for them again, and then they're put back in. And they're welcomed back by the worries that have been in the box all the time and never did get kicked out. Hi, guys. Good to have you back. Boy, you should have seen the duds that just left. They had the nerve to call themselves worries. McManus says, I have a very large worry box. And my wife is one of the major suppliers of that box. (laughs) Now, you laugh, but any husband could say that, as could any wife. Now, here's their interaction. It goes like this. She asks, what'd you do with the checkbook? The checkbook? Is that monster loose again? He said, I imagine at that very moment that an escaped convict is picking it up off the sidewalk. Maybe he will forge my name and deplete our checking account of every last penny. And after he's exhausted all our funds buying drugs, he will come to our house all doped up because the address is on the checks and he'll be nowhere to find us and he and I will grapple with each other and he'll pull a knife and, oh, oh, it's okay, she said, here's a checkbook, it's in my coat pocket. (laughs) Silly me, she says. Now what's wrong with you? Oh, nothing, I say, booting that worry out of my worry box, at least until the next time she asks, what did you do with that checkbook? Now, her telephone technique is specifically designed to worry me, too. I love to listen. It's a love-hate thing. I love and I hate doing it, too. Listen to some people on a telephone. He says her telephone technique is specifically designed to worry me. The phone rings. She picks it up. Hello? Yes? No! And in my head... One of the kids has done something bad. And she says, how bad? How bad? And me, it's really bad. Otherwise, the police wouldn't be calling here. And she says, you just never expect these things to happen to you, do you? And me, I do. And she says, when can we see him? And I'm thinking, Only during special visiting hours, and then he'll be wearing a full body cast. She puts down the phone, and I ask, steeling myself to deal with the horrible emergency I'm about to hear about. So what is it now? Oh, that was Dollar Bill's garage. Larry said that he fixed the car's oil leak with a 35-cent part. What's funny is that to install it, he had to totally disassemble the car. Isn't that something? It's amazing. Just a 35-cent part. How lucky can you get? By the way, 
Larry wants to talk to you about something when he has a chance. Larry, the mechanic, wants to talk to me? Oh, I know what he wants. I know what he wants. He wants my house in exchange for totally disassembling my car. Yep, yep, that's what he wants. We're about to join the ranks of the homeless. You see from this example, and by the way, you say, this is really stretched out, not compared to some of the things you worry about. You see from this example, the old worry about the kid now is immediately replaced by a new worry about becoming homeless. He said, I used to pity the homeless, now I am one. And so on, and on and on it goes. The worry box is wonderfully efficient, and it's always kept exactly full. Worry even as a way of invading my sleep time. It's late, late, late. The lights are out. The ceiling fan is running just gently with that calming bap, 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 bap. The air conditioner's humming quietly. I'm entering that delightful land of Nod. And my wife suddenly brings me from my peaceful slumber with, Was that you? No, honey, it's probably the dishwasher. What did you mean? She says, I mean the snuffling. I, 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 I don't think so. Trying to recall the characteristics of a snuffle. She says, oh, well, go to sleep. It was probably just my imagination. Yeah, go to sleep. Maybe not. Maybe something did snuffle. Maybe it was a bird outside in the tree by the window that snuffled. No, dirt, birds don't snuffle. They chirp. Squirrels are too small to snuffle. Something would have to be pretty big to snuffle. Actually, the only animal that I know that makes a true snuffle is an alligator. That's it, that's it, that's it. There is an alligator, just got out of the pond across the road behind that other house way back there. It being hot and everything, he can't seem to get enough to eat. And now he's gotten into my bedroom and he's snuffling under the bed, waiting to attack me when I finally do go to sleep. Now notice something. It's an interesting part of worry theory. Up to that point, up to that point, when anybody mentions snuffles, my worry box is neatly layered with worries about my children, about my work, about money, about illness, hello, about poverty, about pestilence, about environment, about the wars, about the checkbook, and even about famine. But each one of those is patiently waiting its turn for my attention. But the instant the snuffle is mentioned, and its source is identified as alligators, all those other worries are blasted right out of the box by sudden inflation of the snuffle worry. War. War. Who worries about that? Poverty. Pestilence. Disease. Why? They couldn't be shoehorned back into that worry box. It's packed so tight now with snuffle. However, as with most worries, and most of my worries, and most of your worries, the snuffle turned out to be nothing. Just like about 90-some percent of all things we ever worry about. They never happen. They never happen. Worry warts, are you listening? Today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday. So this morning, I'm not going to preach at you. I just decided you've had enough preaching lately, and I just want to talk to you. Is that okay? If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 14, if you would. 
We need a, a real good jumping off place. Because we're going to talk this morning about life in the worry box. To define worry, I'd like to quote somebody that we're all familiar with. I'd like to quote Rick Warren, who said, Worry is the warning light that God is really not first in my life at this particular moment. End of quote. Yeah, take a good long look at that. It's worth it. Because worry says that God's not big enough to handle my trouble. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And he said that at the conclusion of an entire sermon on worry. You see, the antidote to worry, this is worthy of no taking. Put God first. And when you worry and get yourself caught up in worry, and keep feeding that worry box, and keep replacing one worry with another, and keep filling it and filling it and filling it, what you're basically saying is, God isn't first. God's not in first place in my life. If you were to go back to Matthew chapter 14, there's some tremendous stories in Matthew 14 with a lot of subplots there, but later in the chapter, we see Peter... (laughs) <laughs> in the boat with the other men, and, and um, he, he gets really brave, and, and he sees Jesus walking towards the boat, and, and he's walking on the water, and Peter says, well, what, what, what hinders me from coming to you? And Jesus said, well, come. And Peter hopped over the side or slid down the side or whatever he did, and he started to walk on water, and he walked on water. But after a little bit, he began to sink. He was walking on the water, moving towards Jesus. You can check this out in Matthew 14 on your own. He took his eyes off Jesus, but for a moment, and he put them back on his problem. Likewise, what causes you and what causes me to sink when in our life of faith, we start going down, we start worrying again. When we take our eyes off of Jesus and put them on our problems, then we're saying, we can handle this, I can handle this, I'll just worry about it, that'll look after it. Instead of saying, God, you're number one. I'm going to put you first. I'm going to make you the priority of my life. So with that background and with those stories and with all of that lead up, I want to give you just simply three reasons not to worry. Not to be a worry wart, not to live your life in the worry box. And here are the three reasons real easily. Reason number one, because we believe in God. I asked you to go to John chapter 14. I'm going to start at verse 1. And no, you're not at a funeral. And yes, this is, uh, these are verses you hear at every funeral. I don't really know why, because I think what we're trying to do many times is convince ourselves that Somebody's going to make it if we just read these verses. But I want to read them in context. I want to read them for what they really mean because they have an everyday application in the year 2015 for you and for me right now. Listen up, worrier. So in John chapter 14, verse 1, here's what we read. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. What? Believe also in me. Some of you know that by heart. I know you do. I go to prepare a place for you. And we're going to be talking about that in a moment. We believe in God. Let's first set the scene. What's happened here and what's leading into this 14th chapter of John? Well, let me tell you, and you don't even have to guess. It's the end of the 13th chapter of John that leads into it. That was scientific, wasn't it? Let us set the scene. Jesus has just told his disciples that uh, back in chapter 13, verse 33, he says, I'm going to be leaving you. Here's what he said. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You're going to seek me. But as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. Let's get the background here. These men to whom he's speaking have left everything to follow him. They've abandoned all of their plans for life to be Jesus followers. Now he's telling them that he's going to leave them. And not only is he telling them that, he says, and you can't come, you can't go where I'm going. And that caused them to be very troubled. The word troubled means to cause great mental distress, anguish, if you will. You see, they were more than just a little concerned, and they were more than just a little bit worried. They were greatly troubled. But Jesus tells them, and then the 14th chapter opens, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now I want you to notice, he's telling them, don't worry, believe in God, believe in me, everything's fine. He's not telling them, oh, here, come close, I'll pat you on the back, and everything will be fine, and it's going to be okay, and, 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 and you just believe in God. But what he's doing is, and we often miss this, I don't know how many times we've missed this, I don't know how many preachers and teachers of the word have missed it, but here's what he's doing. He's commanding them. This is his circle of, of influence. This is his small group, if you will. And he's commanding them to believe in God. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Here's the antidote to your worry, your trouble, your anguish. It's believe in God. Believe in me. Trust me. Listen to me. What he's saying is the way to stop worrying is to start believing that God is able to handle you and your problems. A Sunday never passes, but somewhere, somehow in or around this building, I ask someone how they're doing, and somebody will, I'm never disappointed. (laughs) Someone will say, oh, I'm trying hard. I'm still trying. And when I hear someone say that, it's sort of like, well, I'm trying to commit myself to God, but I'm still carrying all these packages. I still got all these burdens. I still cut all this baggage. I'm still doing, because I don't think God wants to be concerned with that. So I'm handling that. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying. And what Jesus is saying here to his disciples is, you need to stop worrying and start believing that I'm able to handle, listen to me carefully, you and your problems. See, we think God can handle everything except the problem we're in, the situation that's just arisen, the deal that's going on, the issue that I have. So he urged them to maintain both their trust in God and their their belief in God and their trust in him. He's telling them, don't doubt, believe. 
And I don't believe, I, I honestly don't believe this is a request. I believe it's a command. He's saying, don't doubt. Believe. Don't fret. Believe. Don't focus on the problems at hand. Believe. Even the psalmist asked the question of himself in Psalm 42 and verse 5. The psalmist said, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. Even the psalmist realized that when the burden got too great, the soul started crushing from within, and the trust and the belief in God was in question. Now, what about this thing, faith in God? I love to quote Corey Ten Boom. If you haven't read or seen or become acquainted with Corey Ten Boom and some of the stuff that has come about because of her life and testimony, I highly, highly recommend it. But Corey Ten Boom, for those of us that know that story, spoke of the unravel, she called it the unraveling effects of worry. You write that down in your Bible note. The unraveling effects of worry. She said this, quote, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. That's a quotable quote. Wow. I'll repeat it if you're trying to write it down. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. So you say, I, I, I worry a lot. Well, I'm glad you're proud of that. What, what good will a lot of worry do? What good will any worry do? And let's stop and think about that, and maybe I'll have you answer that if you know what good it does. It does do some things. Number one, raises your blood pressure. Number two, it hardens your arteries. And I'll try not to look at anybody. Number three, puts wrinkles on your face and dark circles under your eyes. What will it not do? And no amount of makeup will cover it up. Worry won't make your problems go away. Worry won't help you deal with your problems. And worry won't ever, ever, ever make you feel better. Matter of fact, the longer you worry about it, the worse you feel. Since worry is doubt, it's a sin. And the only antidote for worry is faith. Faith in God the Father, faith in Jesus His Son, faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, and faith in His promises. So stop worrying and start believing. Stop trying and start trusting. Stop living your life in the worry box. Reason number one, because you believe in God. Reason number two, not to worry, because He's prepared a place for us. Now, it's getting interesting now, and it's getting personal now, and and it's getting exciting. So in John chapter 14, we're not going to leave it, We're going to go to verse 2 and read verses 2, 3, and 4. 
My father's house has many rooms. And you've read it in other versions I know over the years. as many mansions. Interchangeable there. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Would I have said something like that and misled you? Of course not. And if I go... This is one of the biggest ifs in Scripture. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I want you to read with me the next four words. I will come back. Good. Let's try it again. Usually when you read audibly in a group like this, your mouth opens, okay? So let's just see if that works for you too. It's kind of a scientific uh, gravity takes over. So try this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, here you go. Now look at the rest of that sentence. This ought to have you jumping off your seat. And take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Woo! The fog's clearing now. Mm. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Wow, we do? Wow. So the second reason not to worry... See, it's right here in John 14. It's because he's already prepared a place for us. Let's talk about it. I go to prepare a place for you. I love those wonderful words of Jesus. That's another reason Jesus gives us not to worry. He's going to prepare a place for us. And he tells his disciples, in my Father's house there are many rooms, or there are many mansions. This is not just a small subdivision. Jesus assures his disciples that the reason he's going away is to prepare a place for them. He also assures them that there would be plenty of room for them and for all believers of all time. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Notice, this is what happens. We get so wrapped up. It's hard... Someone said it's hard to believe in the sweet by and by when we're so wrapped up in the nasty now and now. And it never ceases to amaze me how unexcited Christians are about this prospect. This isn't pie in the sky. I hope it works. Cross your fingers, cross your toes, cross your legs. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Bob said it, I've heard some other preachers say it, but we don't know if it's really true. And that's not the kind of stuff we're talking about here, and I'm going to prove it to you a few verses down the way. This is the real deal. This is why we're here. This is what it's all about. If we look at the cross, that's what the cross is all about. If we look at the suffering that Jesus went through, and all of the things that he said, and all of the prophecies that he fulfilled, that's what it's all about. He's going to prepare a place for us. And if he goes and prepares a place for us, he's coming back. And as he comes back, he's taking us back with him from whence he came, and we're going to be with him, and we're going to coexist with him forever and forever and forever and forever. I mean, other places in the Bible tell us that this place is more glorious than any place we could even imagine. 1 Corinthians 2.9 But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. (laughs) No eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, no heart, no mind, no soul has ever conceived 
of what's waiting for us in that place that Jesus has prepared. Having a place prepared for us and getting there, though, are two different things. But he assures us by saying, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm coming back. And if I come back, I'm taking you. And you're coming back with me to be with me. And you know how to get there. Now, he would not go to prepare for friends and for the people he loved and for his inner circle, would he? Unless he expected that they would finally arrive at this place. He would not make preparations for us and then leave us stranded. He says right there in verse 3, and if I go, and he did, and prepare a place for you. I, and by, by the way, by the way, by the way, I, I, I got to thinking about this one day. H- have you ever heard, have you ever heard of a house or a mansion or a Taj Mahal that took over 2,000 years to get ready? This has got to be quite a place, Amen. And he said in verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and I'm going to receive you to myself. That's why I'm preparing it. I want to be at the door to welcome you in, that where I am, there you may be also. Now write this down. Though he didn't elaborate on the promise, the guarantee is unmistakable. Although he didn't elaborate on the promise, the guarantee is unmistakable. His return is as certain as his departure. Did he come to this earth the first time? Yes, no. Did he come the first time? Okay. Did he live here on earth? Did he take on the form of man? In all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin? The perfect man, the God-man, fully God, fully man? Is that Jesus? You're doing good. Did he predict his own demise? Yeah. Was he unjustly treated? Yeah. Did he have to suffer a kangaroo court and, and the lies and the, and the deception of a lot of people, even people who were supposed to be his own people, the Jews who turned on him? And did he suffer? And did he bleed? And did he die? Yes, he died an ignominious death that none of us can even imagine. And no film writer, no screenwriter can properly depict it. They've tried and not done a bad job, I guess. But nobody can imagine the, the inner anguish and agony that he must have gone through. Why? Because he was paying the price for my sin. And he was paying the price for your sin. And we're all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Even you perfect people that are sitting out here today, I have news for you. There is none righteous, no, not one. Say, well, I'm better than she is. Well, I'm better than he is. Well, it doesn't matter who you're better than or if you think you are. Nobody compares when you start comparing yourself to Jesus, the one perfect person, the one perfect being. And he came and he lived and he died. And then he, did he minister again on earth even after his resurrection? Yes. And then did he gather together with several people and then leave them and go from their midst and ascend into heaven? Yeah. So did he leave us? Yes. And he left us in a way that has, has, 
has really left an indelible image on our hearts and minds. He left us, and, 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 and this promise that he gives me, that he's coming back, and he's going to bring us with him. This promise, his return is as certain as his departure. He's going to take them with him to his father's house. It doesn't refer to death. I wish we'd stop using this at funerals. All you preachers in the room, hear me. Jesus left by the road of death, but he returns by the road of life. Many mansions, many rooms. You read it. Wow. Think about that. What, what will heaven be like? I hear stories. Every day I hear stories. Well, yes, I imagine he's up there and he's playing with his kitty. Or yes, he's been with grandma now for so long. Um, uh, uh, our minds just get caught up in stuff that doesn't even make sense. Look, a nine-year-old child could tell you. Matter of fact, some nine-year-old children were asked what they thought of death and dying. I love their answers. Little Jimmy said, when you die, they bury you in in the ground, and your souls, they go to heaven, but your body, it can't go to heaven because it's too crowded up there already. (laughs) That's good theology right there. Jody said, only the good people go to heaven. The other people go where it's hot all the time, like in Florida. <laughs> John said, maybe I'll die, maybe I'll die someday, but I hope I don't die on my birthday because it's no fun to celebrate your birthday if you're dead. <laughs> yeah? And little Marcia commented, when you die, you don't have to do any homework in heaven, unless your teacher's there too. Now I'm going to make a statement that would get me kicked out, wouldn't be the first time, of any modern seminary. Who cares what you do in heaven as long as you get to go? (laughs) Think about that. And ask yourself a little question. Am I going? No hope so's here. Am I going? For that matter, who cares what happens in this life as long as we're going to get to go to heaven? I didn't expect to get this real strong response on that one. No, that's fine, because you've never had it put to you that way, and you never thought about that. But it doesn't matter what we're going to do in heaven if we get to go, and it doesn't matter then what happens here on earth if we're going to go to heaven. All this worry for what? All this fun, then you die. It doesn't make sense, folks. Why should I worry about things I have no control over anyway as long as I get to go to heaven? Nice little prayer for you to pray is, Lord, if it's not your will, let it slip through my grasp and give me peace not to worry about it. Hallelujah. Woo! Why should I worry about things that have no eternal significance as long as I know that I'm going to get to go to heaven? 
Why should I worry about things that won't change? Hello, worry wart. Hello, those of you that are living life in the worry box. Why should you worry about things that aren't going to change? And that no, any amount, no amount of worry could possibly change. Maybe make it worse. I, shouldn't, I better cl- clarify that. Even if I worry about them, they're not going to change. Even if I think about them all the time, they're not going to change. Even if I'm obsessed on those things, they're not going to change. As, listen, why should I worry about all that? Why should I use up that energy? Why should I get positive energy turned into negative energy when God wants to bless me every day? And at the end of it all, I'm getting to go to heaven anyway. The point's clear here. Why should we worry when Jesus made two great promises to us? He's going to prepare a place for us, number one. And he never really asks us to believe that. He kind of commands us to believe that. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God and you believe in me? That's all you need. And he's going to come and take me there. That's uh, promise number two. Those are the only two promises I need. He's going to prepare a place. I'm going to see that place. Say, well, I got to see that football game first. <laughs> and, and I'll say this because there's, there's no bigger sports coach than I am. What does it matter? What does it matter? What does it matter? I don't want to mention Bama, but what does it matter? Really, really, in the grand scheme of things, well, we're going to get to go to heaven anyway. Amen? Yeah? Yeah? Nothing that can happen to us in this life can compare to what Jesus has prepared for us. Look, look, heaven, heaven. So nothing, 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 nothing can compare to that. Christian friend, don't worry about today. Focus on what Jesus has promised you for tomorrow. And live in that expectation. Don't live life in the worry box. Hey, reason number three not to worry. Because he's reliable. He's reliable. I'm not even going to say above all else or anything else. He's the only one that's reliable. Nobody and nothing is reliable when compared to Jesus. Look at verses 5 and 6 of John 14. So Jesus had just said, well, I'm going, and I'm going to prepare a place, I'm coming back, and you're going with me, and you know how to get there. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And and don't call him doubting Thomas. I don't like that phrase because this man asked some of the best questions of all time when he was with Jesus. They say, well, you know, he didn't show up and he missed church and Jesus was there and he could have seen the, you know, that this really was the risen Jesus and blah, 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 blah. I don't criticize Thomas. I never call him Doubting Thomas. Don't think that even fits. He had the mental and intellectual integrity to say, I'll believe it when I see it. And, and here's, here's the beautiful part that I love about Thomas. I'd just like to hug him. He said, unless I can see the scars, the hole in the hand, the, the pierced side, unless I can see that, 
But you know there's no record anywhere in the Gospels that Thomas ever touched him or said, show me your hands or show me. As soon as he came into the presence of the risen Jesus, he bowed down and said, Lord, I believe. You know, people get all over Peter because he was sinking on the water. When's the last time you hopped over the side of the boat and took a little stroll? So, well, he only maybe went one or two. We don't know how many steps he went. He might have only taken three for all I know. That's four more than you and I have ever taken. We need to be careful how we get all over people. And even in this life, today and age, you know, you turn to somebody that's sitting near you or in front of you or back of you or not here. Those are the ones you can really pick on. And you say, well, I don't know. They get do blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we can find that in everybody and everybody can find that in us. What does it matter? What? You're not looking at the big scope. You're not looking at the whole enchilada. I mean, you've got to think about this. What do those things matter? So Thomas said, well, Lord, and, and he was just being honest. I don't, most of what Jesus had been teaching, even pre-crucifixion, they didn't understand. What do you think they understood in the upper room that night when he forecast his death, his impending death, his suffering? They didn't understand what. They didn't understand where it was going to end. They didn't understand even why until much later. And that's why they're true disciples, because they stuck with it even when it started coming through. Today we have people that like certain things, but then when stuff starts coming through, they scatter. These were real disciples, real followers. So Thomas said, we don't, we don't know. And not only that, we don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. In verse 6, Jesus said, well, I'm the way. Oh, you love that answer. I'm the way, the truth. And the life, in case you've forgotten anything here, no one comes to the Father, what? Except through me. There's no other way to get there. Didn't say most people will make it that way if they follow. Nobody gets there except through Jesus. Aren't you glad that's true? So I am the way. These are the words of Jesus. The truth and the life. Can we all say that together? Jesus' words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Memorize that. Think about that. Meditate on that. You see, the third reason for not worrying has to do with the fact that we can trust him. He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. What else is there? Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the truth or the reality of all of the promises of God. Jesus is the life as he joins, think of this, he joins his divine life to ours now and eternally. Whew. Jesus is the way, that, why did he say I'm the way? Because he's the way that leads us to the truth and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. His reply to Thomas is the ultimate foundation for a philosophy of life. If you have not settled your philosophy of life yet, I encourage you, my friend, to do it today and do it with these words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Wow. You see, it's personal. 
Jesus didn't say, well, I know the way. I know you don't, Thomas, ha, 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 but I do. Jesus didn't say, oh, you don't really understand the concept of truth, but I do. I've studied it. I'm a philosophy major. Jesus didn't say, uh, I know a lot about life. I can teach you what life really means, and I can teach you where it comes from. Hmm. He didn't claim any of those things as a formula that he could just impart to the, to the ignorant. But here's what he did. He actually claimed to be the answer to all human problems. And folks, that again is the ultimate reason for us not to worry. When he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying, I've got the answer for all of human, the, the problems of humanity. Because I am the answer. He's not a way. He's the way. He's not a truth. He's the truth. And he's not a life. He is the life. <laughs> Jesus didn't respond to Thomas's question. God loved Thomas. He didn't give him some cheap quote off the top of his head. and speak. But he speaks from a position of ultimate authority. <clears throat> this is God speaking into man. He's the way to the Father because he has this intimate relationship and knowledge of God and it's unmired by sin, not like my, not mine or yours. He's the truth because he, 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 he has the perfect power of making life one coherent experience instead of, instead of all those roller coaster ups and downs. He's the life because he was not subject to death. Listen to this very carefully. But death is subject to him. He defeated death. He defeated hell. He defeated sin. He defeated the grave. That's why he says, I'm the life. Because death is subject to him, never the other way around. And because of that, and that alone, you can trust him. You can trust him with anything that's going on in your life. You can trust him with any situation you face. You can trust your eternal soul to him. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, you can. I want to use an analogy from sports, if I may, before I wrap up. Won't interest some of you because you're into football fever right now, but this is from the world of baseball. And, and, and this man was an extraordinary picture. But he, if I were to say his name and some of the statistics, you probably, you, you probably wouldn't think you're going to be very impressed with his story. But I want to end that story with his own words. But anyway, he was a veteran of 21 seasons. Rick will know who I'm talking about. And only one time did he win more than 20 games. He never pitched a no-hitter. He only one time led the league in any category. That was a 2.21 ERA back in 1980. <coughs> Yet on June the 21st, 1986, Don Sutton of the California Angels rubbed pitching elbows with the true legends of the game by becoming the 13th pitcher overall to ever win 300 games. Here's his, Don Sutton's analysis of his success. It's worth noting. This is his own analysis. Here's what he said. I was a grinder, a mechanic. I never considered myself flamboyant or exceptional. Listen. But all my life, I've found a way to get the job done, end of quote. And get it done, he did. 
through two decades, <laughs> six presidential terms, four trades, he consistently did what pitchers are supposed to do. Do you know what pitchers are supposed to do? Win games. Hello? And with tunnel vision devotion, he spent 21 seasons redefining greatness. And when you talk greatness in baseball today, his name doesn't come up. But it ought to. He's been called the family sedan of baseball's men on the mound. The team could always depend, no matter what team, it could always depend on Don Sutton. And I want to turn quickly from that to the spiritual realm. And when, when you hear me say this, I want you to think about this. You can always depend on Jesus. If I never told you anything else that would help you through life, this will. And if you just mark it down somewhere, or you just get it written on the, on, on the doorpost of your heart and just say, I'm going to live by this principle. I can always depend on Jesus. I can always depend on Him. I can always depend on Jesus. Right now, you're depending on something. You're depending on someone. You're trying to impress. You're trying not to impress. You're, you're trying to be in. You hope you're not in. Whatever. It's just, it, life is such a, a, a muddle for so many people. And we've had a chance, directly and indirectly, in the last few weeks to talk to a lot of people at Faith Community about certain things. I just had a conversation at the back before we started today. And I, and I told someone, I said, we have so many stories in this family, in this church family. It's unbelievable. Some of the stuff that some of our people are going through right now. They're putting on a happy face when they come here on Sunday. But the stuff they're going through. And it's not about... It, 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 it's, it's nobody's... See, the problem with our world today is it's always somebody else's fault. However, when you get digging, it's nobody's fault. We can't blame anybody for anything. Some of you social workers are looking at me and you're like, yeah, that's right, you can't do this. It's like, nothing is ever anybody's fault. Nobody's taking responsibility. So we're all just in this muddle. We're all just trying to figure it out in the, in the midst of what we call life. We're not really keeping our eyes on this one statement. You can always depend on Jesus. Where is he in your situation right now? Where is he in your life? You can depend on him. Why? Because he's the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. You can depend on Him. Why? Because He'll show you the way to the Father. He'll reveal to you the truth. And that's what we need to deal with is, is the truth of God. And He'll lead you to eternal life. Now here's the bottom line. You don't have to worry because Jesus will make a way where there is no way. Remember that song? Jesus will show the truth when the devil feeds you a pack of lies. And boy, is the devil busy today. You know, the day is coming. When the devil's fury is going to be unleashed over the whole earth. That's prophecy. And we're not too far away from that right now. I used to say, and I've said it right up till, for 40 years, right up till recently, well, just listen to the news and read your newspapers. Now I shy away from even saying that for fear I'll scare people to death. No, really, because wonder what went on somewhere in the world this morning while we were here. The devil has never been so busy. 
And he has never fed people so many lies. And he's never had so many people believe those lies. And he's never had so many Christians scared to death because they don't know if the lie is true or not, or should they believe it, or should they, you know, accept it, or should they, what should they do? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He'll give you life that nobody can ever take away. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Nobody can take it away. Not cancer, not heart, not, not diabetes, not, not any of those. They can't take it away, the life he's given you. They can affect this body, this shell, this, this, this outer person. But, 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 but that has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the eternal life that he's given, God has given us through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5, 7, I'll just leave you with a verse. <laughs> it says, cast all your care on him. All your care. See, we like, to, we like to cast part of it. We like to think like, well, we can handle this, and we'll give you that. Cast all your care on him. And I'm going to ask you to do that this morning. Some of you are here and you say, oh, I've heard this and I've heard it and I've heard it and I know and I'm challenged and I'm squirming and I can't face you and I'm, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. Cast all your care on him. Why? Because for he cares for you. And it's one thing when your mother cares for you. It's one thing when your friends care for you. It's one thing when people you work with Doubt that happens, but they care for you. It's one thing when, when, when your spouse cares for you. It's one thing when your children care for you or your parents. Think of this, though. Cast all your care on Jesus. Why? Because He cares for you. When, and I want to say this. If He cares for you, you can write this down. You're really being cared for. Don't you love Him? Oh, oh man. Yeah. So we don't have to worry because we believe in God. He's prepared a place for us. He's someone we can rely on, totally trust, depend, always, 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 always. So you can worry if you want to. It's your choice, obviously. You can fret. You can be a worry worry wart, and if you prefer that, if that's that's what trips your switch, whatever. Or and, and, and even this, I better put it in. You can just decide, oh, I'm going to live the rest of my life in, in the worry box. I've been there most of my life, and uh, I might as well. I, I might as well. Hmm. Hmm. Let me just tell you something. As for me, I can't speak for anyone else. I'd rather trust Jesus. And I'd rather challenge you to do likewise. Could we bow in prayer and just have some quiet moments? Uh, if we could, that'd be great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Sweet, sweet time. I'm going to challenge you this morning while our heads are bowed. And I know you're thinking things over here. Mm-hmm. Maybe you ought to just pray right now and, 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 and just commit to God and say, God, I, 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 I believe you and I trust you. And I want to show that with my life. 
I don't want to just empty the worry box. I want to do away with it. I don't need this worry box anymore. I'll just take it away from me. I'm trying to run my own life, God. You know that. I know that. It's not working. Yes, it causes me worry. And I don't want to worry anymore. Take it from me. Yes, I know. The only antidote to worry is faith in you, Lord. And I'm claiming that victory right now to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know the only way to follow Jesus where he's gone to recognize that he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. And I've never fully put my trust in him to save me and to assure me that that eternity in heaven is all mine. But I want to do that today. I want to accept him. I want to receive him. I want that to become reality. Father, Thank you for the preciousness of this moment. Thank you, Lord, for the sincerity and the searching of every heart. Those that are struggling. Those that are really putting on a good, a good front, but inside, Lord, really hurting. It's down deep, and it's real. Lord, help every one of them to recognize the need and to turn to you today. It's faith in you, Lord, that does it. And we always can rely on you. We know that, and we thank you for that. Have your way as we continue with our challenge this morning and as you speak to our hearts, even in the words of this song that we're going to share. And help us to get away from living life in the worry box. For we pray with victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a song right now that's going to be part of this message. And it's, it's a nice, I call it a clincher. Will you listen, but especially watch the lyrics of this song? And if God's speaking to your heart and you've just been communing with him in prayer... Don't hesitate to go back into prayer and have that quiet moment and speak to him and let him do his work in your heart as we listen.
Lay 